You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. And every stage of love seems to have its form of suffering slash discomfort. Like even if you're about to go on a blind date with someone, you never even met them. It's uncomfortable already because you're like, what if they don't like me? Or what if they do like me? Or what if all my relationship problems, you know, show up on date one? And, and then if you fall in love, of course, that's heavenly, like literally divine. But it's also uncomfortable in the sense that everything is so fraught. And you're like, what was that look? And maybe I shouldn't have said that word or worn those pants or, you know, there's all there's everything is very, very intense. And then when you're in a long term relationship, exactly as you point out, there is a tremendous amount of irritation. Nobody tells you that either. That was quite surprising. That was Susan Piper, a dear friend and the only guest to have joined us for four episodes. She's the New York Times bestselling author of eight books and the founder of the Open Heart Project, a completely virtual meditation center with close to 20,000 members. Today we jam about the Four Noble Truths of Love, which also happens to be the title of her new book, and how to minimize the suffering and discomfort that are part and parcel of all relationships. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Susan, thanks so much for joining me again on the podcast. This is the fourth episode um, that you've that you've joined me on, and that's really amazing because I was looking at I think you're actually the only person that's been here four times besides Angela, right? Um, and so thanks so much for coming back for a fourth time. And you know how much I love you dearly. And, and you know, you've always been a hit with our guests. So thank you. Charlie, thank you. I am going to wear it in my number four very proudly. And I'm going to try to keep I'm going to try to keep my status as mo- most often appearing on Charlie's podcast. <laughs> well, it turns out you keep writing books. <laughs> then because I think you came in and I think it was episode 54, maybe where we were talking about start here now. Um, so yeah, you've, you've produced mm-hmm. several books over the last couple of years. And it's not just that you got to write a book to be on the show, but it's just like, that's, it's a great talking point for us. Perfect. Um, and so today we are going to be talking about and around your new book, The Four Noble Truths of Love. And the first thing I got to say about this is I absolutely love the book and I love the way that you really showed up in this one. And so I'm wondering, um, did the writing process feel different or did you feel like you showed up in a different way in this book than you have in previous books? Well, I'm glad you liked it. I really, that really means a lot to me. I'm really glad. Yeah. As you were talking, it was actually occurring to me how it was different. The books I've written before were my attempt to present certain Buddhist teachings in a modern context and make them relevant to our lives, people who are not monks and nuns. And this book is not different in that sense. However, it does present a teaching that I made up. It presented uh, a way of looking at relationships that was construed by myself based on my study as a as a as a Buddhist, and very much connected to the Buddha Dharma. But the things I've written before were the teachings, the six paramitas, the four immeasurables, the four noble truths, just ex- sort of hopefully explained. This is different than that, in that it's it's my own view. 
It's your own view. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, hmm, this is actually in many ways a return to her body of work. Um, because 100 Questions and the Wisdom of a Broken Heart were really about relationships and questions and the difficulty of relationships and things like that. And um, I think it's fair to say in those book, it was less about trans... I mean, it was about translating Buddhism for those contexts, but I think this one, like, it was less oblique. You're like, I'm just doing mm. it, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, as opposed to sort of sneaking into it. Does that Does that resonate? It does. It does. And in those earlier books, there was a lot of pulling back, as you're alluding to, with the sense of, I may not know what I'm talking about, but this is what it looks like to me. And as I've written over the years, every time I've had an editor, they've always like just crossed those things out. Like, that's irritating. That's You're saying those things for your benefit, not, not the reader. So if you have something to say, just say it. And I think in this book, I just said it. <laughs> um, so... So tell us in a shorthand what the book is about so that we pull people into the conversation. Sure, sure. So the Four Noble Truths of Love are based on the Buddhists' Four Noble Truths, which are the core teachings of the entire Buddhist path. But they are reconfigured to apply to intimate relationships. And I think much of the book is about how do you actually sustain a relationship because there are already a lot of books about what do you do to find love not that it's easy but how do you get love is what most of the relationship books are about in our world how do you get it how do you keep it how do you make it come back and i noticed some time ago that there are very few books on how to give love how to be loving they're all about how to get love not about how to give love and so much of the Buddhist path is about how to give love. And I, I wanted to write something that took a closer look at that. So what I'm going to say here is, as you know, as someone who is not a Buddhist, um, but is Buddha friendly, um, mm. you do not have to subscribe to the beliefs of, of, of this to get the juice of it, right? It's, you can read it without them just saying this, this is a path that, that pulls us to make sense. And as we'll talk throughout the episode, um, there are a lot of really useful frameworks in the Buddhist teachings that you've applied here. And so that's one of the reasons why I think anyone can approach it, because though different traditions have different ways of talking about these things, what I particularly appreciate about this path is that it does have like, here are the four things and here are the three ways and here are the eight steps. Like you really don't have to do a lot of like the imagination to figure out what you need to do to have a successful relationship and to be present and loving to yourself and others. You're absolutely right. It, it, and it, it, the operative word is do. Here's what you do, as opposed to here's what you believe. Buddhism, to me, is you know, different than other religions or paths in that sense, in that it, it is actually not about beliefs. I consider Buddhism to be like this sort of really high-level form of common sense. And yes, anyone can do it, and it is about doing things. And my husband, as I said in the book, has benefited from these things too. He, he's not a Buddhist. He just not, doesn't practice meditation. So I appreciate you bringing up that point. You, you don't have to be a Buddhist to apply this like sort of really exalted common sense. That's how I see it. Yeah, you're, you're, you don't have big metaphysical commitments with this, with this sort of things. You're not trying to weigh on whether, you know, God is one or three or whether one is right or the other. Like, and I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm just saying this, mm -hmm. it's not coming front loaded with 
metaphysical suppositions, right? Um, but there is a, a, an important point that you make very early on in the book about the difference between a relationship and a love affair. Um, yeah. And this causes a lot of suffering. So go ahead and unpack that for us. Yes, I'd love to. I, nobody ever told me this. I, I'm like, why don't people tell us this, that love affairs and relationships are not the same thing? So we, in our world, we feel like, okay, you, you fall in love with someone and a love affair begins. That's awesome. There's no question about that. That is fantastic. But somehow we don't question that it should therefore turn into a relationship. We expect our love affairs to become relationships. And we expect our relationships to remain love affairs. But the truth is that is rare. And I'm sure people who are listening, and you know, me too, and maybe you, I've been in relationships where I think, oh, this person is great. They're so much fun. I love hanging out with them. I love doing things with them. But I don't really want to introduce them to my friends. <laughs> or I don't, you know, I can't really imagine trying to talk about money with them or things that are more in the relationship camp. So it's really important to try to figure out which one you're doing, which one the person you're in a relationship thinks they're doing, and to not apply the same rules to both. And, and this book, I think, is more about relationships than love affairs. I think that's true. And you mentioned apply the same rules. I would, I would reframe it as say apply the same expectations. Right. That's a good reframe. Because as we start unpacking the Four Noble Truths, like so many, uh, so much of the suffering is around expectations, right? Mm -hmm. We expect the relationship to have that euphoric quality or that sensual quality of the love affair. And when it doesn't, we question the relationship. But, exactly. But really what we're questioning is the love affair, right? And not the relationship. And so we get all mixed up and drama unfolds. Um, and so, um, that will become more clear as you explain really what the four noble truths are. So go ahead and hit me with it. Okay. Happy to. Um, but first I need to sort of say what the Buddhist four noble truths are, and I'll say them very briefly. So when the Buddha became enlightened, his people said, what did you see? And he said four things. And the entire Buddhist path to this day is based around these four truths. They are that essential. The first noble truth is that life is suffering, which is does not mean life sucks. It means life is unsatisfying in some kind of way because everything changes. There is nothing solid to hold on to, and that is painful. So that is that is our that is our that's the human experience. So everything's always changing and it's and it's painful. So that's the first noble truth is called the truth. <laughs> The second noble truth is called the cause of suffering, which in this case is grasping, which basically means pretending that the first noble truth is not true, acting like it's not true. The third noble truth is called the cessation of suffering, which means you could stop. Now that you know what you're doing to cause it, just stop doing that and you will stop suffering. Well, how do you do that? So the fourth noble truth is called the eightfold path. And it is the eight things that you do every day in your life to bring about cessation of suffering. And they're very beautiful and interesting. Right view, right intention, right livelihood, right speech, right livelihood, and so on. So the Four Noble Truths sort of have a progression. There's the statement of a truth, a problem, the cause of the problem, that you could stop having that problem, and how to do so. 
So when I applied those in my love life at a, during a period when I was really suffering in my marriage, we just were not getting along at all. This is what came to me. The first noble truth of love is that relationships are uncomfortable. They never stabilize. That's also something that no one ever tells you because you think, oh, well, we're in this relationship. That's great. We have this problem and that problem. We're going to solve this one. Then we're going to solve that one. And then we're going to be in some relationship plateau that doesn't change. And next week I'll be married for 20 years. Congratulations. It's crazy. Thank you. And that never happens. It never stabilizes. It's constantly love and connection are constantly pulsing in and out of existence. So I, nobody told, told me that, but that's what turns out to be true. So that's the first noble truth. The second noble truth, the cause of suffering is thinking that relationships should be comfortable and stable is actually what causes more discomfort and instability than anything else. So we think this should, if we have a problem, that's a sign of a problem in our relationship. And sometimes it is because there are some things that should not be tolerated and they are exempt from this view. And I, I just want to be really clear that when we talk about these things, we're not talking about relationship problems around abuse or addiction, any kind of emotional or physical abuse, different category, not included. But otherwise, you know, we think, well, this should be comfortable. This, this relationship should make me happy. So, however, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. So that's the second noble truth. The third noble truth is that meeting this discomfort and instability together is love. So in other words, it's one thing to have a partner that when a problem arises, you sort of look at each other and go, well, you did this. And the other person goes, well, you did that. Okay, that's useful. You got to examine your behavior and call, you know, hold each other to account and so on. But a great partner is not one who will keep trying to make you more comfortable. A great partner is one who will sort of turn to stand shoulder to shoulder with you and look out at the problem together as a kind of weather front. Now we like each other. Now we don't. Now you like me and I don't like you. And let's be on this ride together. It's not saying that the good times and the bad times feel equal because they don't. But can someone go on this ride with you? That as opposed to can someone love you all the time? I, I think that's a better, a better bet. I put my chips on, on, the, on the former. Are you with someone who can go on the ride? And the fourth noble truth is there's a way to do all of this. And there are not eight steps. There are three steps. So I'm happy to talk about them at some point. But they, they are basically predicated on the meditation practice. They're the same qualities that create mindfulness also create a good relationship. So those are, those are the four noble truths of love. That's fantastic. It, it reminds me of a joke from a comedian that – I can't remember. And it's a joke, so don't take it over serious, everyone. But it's like he said, the trouble with relationships is that um, men get into a relationship with a woman and expect her not to change. And women get into a relationship with her, and she does, right? Or excuse me, and she changes, right? 
And women get into a relationship with a man and expect to be able to change him, and he doesn't. He does not. <laughs> um, now, again, just a joke, but I think there's what it points to is this expectations game. Like, we expect things to go a certain way. When they don't go that way, that's where their suffering you know, really comes from. And the um, there's a there's a phrase you used... It was like all-encompassing suffering. Suffering. What was the what was the phrase that you used? It was in like in chapter one. Um, the, Suff- the, su- the suffering of suffering. Well, it's the suffering of suffering, but it was like the the general the general suffering that we all feel like you know every day. And I think a lot of times it's like when we use words like suffering, I think the first thing that comes up for a lot of people is like that deep, intense. You know, you, your leg got cut off and it's hurting and things like that, and we call like that suffering but not the suffering when the partner puts on the toilet paper the wrong way. And it you're, <laughs> like, you've had this conversation how many times, right? <laughs> they put it on the wrong way or, you know, just the general things. Like I, the thing that, that causes Angela suffering, that causes me suffering this one <laughs> for that reason is like, I'll occasionally forget to lock the door, right? Just randomly one out of, you know, one out of 50 times I might forget to lock the door. And she's like, you forgot to lock the door again. And I'm like, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like I can't go back. Like I get it for I get it right 49 out of 50 times, right? Um, right? but that's I think the type of suffering that I want people to sort of anchor to in the sense of when we say suffering, we don't mean you got hit by a bus and everything. Like it's just this day-to-day all pervasive stuff that comes at you. 110%. And every stage of love seems to have its form of suffering slash discomfort. Like even if you're about to go on a blind date with someone, you never even met them. It's uncomfortable already because you're like, what if they don't like me or what if they do like me or what if all my relationship problems, you know, show up on date one? And and then if you fall in love, of course, that's heavenly, like literally divine. But it's also uncomfortable in the sense that everything is so fraught and you're like, what was that look? And maybe I shouldn't have said that word or worn those pants or, you know, there's all there's everything is very, very intense And then when you're in a long-term relationship, exactly as you point out, there is a tremendous amount of irritation. Nobody tells you that either. That was quite surprising. Um, But just the the living next to someone, living with someone, creates this kind of uh, tension that is the all-pervasive suffering. And actually, I think causes more harm. I don't think that's, that's just part of the relationship. So I'm not suggesting there's a way to get rid of that. But those little things, like you put the toilet paper on the wrong way, you didn't forgot to lock the door. For me, it's my husband, Duncan always gets irritated with me when I lose my keys, which is not infrequent. And he'll say, well, if you just put them in the same place every time, you wouldn't lose them. To which I say, if I was the kind of person who could remember to put them in the same place every time, I would not be the kind of person who loses them. Anyway, those stupid things, silly things, but they, they create distance. And they're important to look at, even though they are small. And when I say look at, I don't mean to analyze and I don't even mean to fix. I mean to note and get, you know, maybe get a little mad or laugh usually is what happens when you notice these things, but not to just continually brush them under the, under the carpet. So I think there's a tension here, right? Because there's like the don't sweat the small stuff principle, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the like principle that if you make things a problem, they become a problem. Mm -hmm. 
And there's this tension in between those two polarities, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like noticing I locked the door again, (laughs) or I didn't forget, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, there's a way to pay attention to that suffering or to that discomfort without making that discomfort more powerful than it is. It's like, this is not, you know, sometimes when Angela and I have conversations about these small sort of things, I'm like, in context, this is not like some problem with the universe. This is not some problem, some major capital P problem with a relationship. It's just, this happened, right? And so how do we, how do we like thread that, that middle line between just sweeping it under the rug, not something to talk about, or we got to talk, you know, sort of scenario. Right. Well, that's an interesting question. Very interesting question. And I think, you know, it's very personal. I don't want to cop out, but you know, you brush things under the rug because you don't want to point out all these little things all the time because you don't want to be, you know, a pain in the ass. But at some point it just gets to be too much and you have to, you have to like let off some steam. But I think before you get to that point, so you do, and hopefully you're in a relationship with someone who will just stop, sort of stop what they're doing at some point and go, okay, this is happening. Let's, 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 let's look at it. Let's, let's do this together. Or I'm not going to do it because I can't. So, but, but we'll do it later. But just to acknowledge it somehow. I think prior to that, the thing that is the most frightening to another person, and I wish I'd put this in the book. I didn't though is not that you put the toilet paper on the wrong way. It's not that you forget to lock the door. It's not that you lose your keys. The thing that causes us the most fear is when we sense unconsciousness on the part of our partner. And so I would say mindfulness here is key because Angela, I'm guessing, is not upset because you've got to lock the door, although it is a little scary when you don't have a door locked. It's that she's fears your lack of thought, your lack of awareness is actually what scares people. And so when I lose my keys, I don't think Duncan is actually freaking out because I can't find my keys. I think he's freaking out because he can't trust my mind. And it's the other person's lack of awareness that frightens us. So the more awareness, the more mindfulness we can express or the, the better, but of course, we're human. We're not going to do it all the time. But when these things arise, instead of saying, why are you so mad at me? It's just a little thing. I lock the door almost all the time or I, I'll find my keys. It's not that big. It doesn't bother me. Why does it bother you? To sort of make some comment or, or to acknowledge that there was a thoughtlessness, that there was something that you were not co- cognizant of. And that is the thing that is really scary to your partner. So you don't have to be silly about it, but if you say, you know, if I, if I would say to Duncan, yeah, I did lose my keys, but, you know, I, I know I'm absent-minded. I know I am, and I'm really working on it. I think that's more what, what upsets him than the keys is, oh, I'm with someone who's absent-minded. What else is she going to forget? I'm, more, I'm curious about that because it often comes out, I think it's a lack of mindfulness, but I think there's an asymmetry that happens because it's a lack of, a lack of mindfulness of something that I care about. Mm. Right. Right. Um, So it's, it's a bit of not, not being attentive to something that's important to me as opposed to, or that what I think is important is important without the qualifier to me. Right. Um, And so I I think that's also at play too, because like for the things they don't care about, they don't necessarily mind that we're not attentive to those things. It's the things that they do care about that they mind that we're seeming to not be attentive to. That is such a good point and a really good way of saying it. 
And being attentive to things that someone else cares about is also called good manners, which is to me like if I could pick one quality that above all other qualities could predict success in a relationship, it would actually be this very prosaic sounding thing called good manners, which doesn't mean knowing which fork to use. It means being aware of what's important to the other person and have and bringing making some room for that or even if you don't make room for it just being aware like if mindfulness of breath is the foundation of meditation practice which it is if you're not mindful of your breath you're not meditating you may be doing something else awesome but it's not meditation cognizance of the other person's presence and displaying good manners to them is the foundation of a relationship because in both cases if you minus that thing, if you minus attention on breath, if you minus good manners, in the first case, you're not meditating. In the second case, you're not in a relationship. It's impossible to have a good relationship with someone who do- will not think of you. Yeah, and I, I think that's where, like, especially in a relationship, I, I think it happens in the early love part of a relationship when you realize, like, wait a second, like, they put their toothbrush over there on that side of the sink, and that's really awkward, right? And you're <laughs> You know, it's, it's these small things, and I keep making the absurd small things, but these are the things that actually bug the crap out of us, like, when right. they start to pile up, right? Um, right. And it's like, wait a second, they take their trash out the morning of trash day, not the night before? Who does that? See, that's hilarious, because those kinds of things don't bother me. But they really bother Duncan. He's got a place for everything, and I don't. So what happens here? Am I supposed to like become like him and do things his way that be pissed off and resentful? Well, to some degree, but you know, that you make these accommodations for the other person. I, I told this story in the book of a long, 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 long time ago, I was camping in the Sinai desert with uh, my boyfriend. And we noticed that everyone else was folding up their tents and getting in their cars and then just putting their seats back to go to sleep. We're like, why? It's a beautiful day. Why are they getting in their cars? So we got in our tent and we lit a, lit a lantern. We we're eating something and the wind started to pick up. But the lantern stayed lit and stuff. So we're just talking and I don't know what we were doing. And then we noticed that the floor was piling up with sand. It was like up to our covering our legs. And within minutes, you know, we would be buried in sand because we were in a sandstorm in the Sinai Desert. And when you talk about those little things, I often think of that experience of you're sitting there. Oh, this is there's no problem here. You know, we got some light. We got some shelter. We got some sandwiches. We're talking. We're chit-chatting. And then, boom, something blows up out of nowhere. And you don't know why. And I think, I mean, I don't know why either, but there's something about these little moments accruing like a sandstorm that suddenly you're in a dire situation. You got to do something about it. Yeah. And you put it so well in the book that it's the challenge is, is is not any single grain of sand that you can point to. That's right. right? It's not like, like, you know, in those cases of um, unreasonable behavior of abuse and, you know, some, some addictions and, you know, things like that, like that's in your face. Like you're just like, this is not okay. Like, I don't need a sandstone. I need one grain of that sand for me to be out. Right. Exactly. Um, but you know, the toothbrushes and the toilet paper and the not signing the, the, the teacher's like permission form, like all those different types of things that happened, right. End up being this thing. And the, the challenging thing is when you are talking to other people about it, 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 
on a one way to complain about it, you sound really petty, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's this and it's that and it's this and it's that. And your parents are like, why are you so nitpicky? And you're like, but you don't understand. It's the whole thing, right? <laughs> um, it's just bugging me. Um, yeah. But I think that's where we can return to the um, first or second noble truth where it's like, yeah, that's a relationship. Yeah. And also we can return to mindfulness because my theory, and this is not my theory, actually, this is this theory is connected to the Mahayana school of Buddhism and teachings on bodhisattva activity or the activity of an awakened being. There's the closer we are with someone, the less able we are to actually see them because the closer we get, the more our lives mix, the more our minds mix. And it becomes difficult even to sort of tell, is this me or you that I'm thinking about and talking about right now? So in this view, the way we talk to ourselves mixes with the way we talk to this other person because our minds are mixing. And the way we talk to ourselves, I don't know about you, Charlie Gilkey, but for me, it's quite harsh. And there's a lot of criticism and there's a lot of self-doubt and there's a lot of uh, judgment and harshness. And with the person we love the most, that voice is likely to be heard most clearly directed toward them as much as it is toward ourselves, because we're not quite sure who is who. So in this sense, working with your own mind, not to be like, I'm awesome and everything about me is great, but to soften toward yourself. To me, the practice of mindfulness is exactly that. It's the practice of softening toward yourself, not becoming, it's not about stress reduction or, you know, changing the shape of your amygdala or whatever. It's about kindness. It's about softening. It's about love. So the more you can espouse that voice in the way you talk to yourself, the more it will be heard in the way you talk to your partner, and the less, I therefore posit, those irritations will occur. Yeah. And I think, well, something you said reminds me of some stuff I ran across around the view that we humans actually create superorganism sets with the people that we're in relationship with. And so hmm. a superorganism is things like oh, amoebas and things like that. But essentially you become one type of entity when in tight relationships and groups. And that's how we function. When you look at teams, when you look at high performance team, they are they operate as a superorganism. Like they mm-hmm. they communicate as such, so on and so forth. And I think in really um, intimate and long-standing mature relationships, you can also think of yourself as a superorganism where there's just things that are happening without conscious communication and things like that. There's a, just a way that you are. Um, and so when we have these little discomforts around lo- doors locking, things like that, it's a reminder that this other part of what you have considered yourself is not actually a part. It's a different being and it's jarring, right? Cause it's like, wait a second, you're part of a superorganism and then you're not. And what happened What's going on? Like, and you, there's that fear of, for lack of better words, abandonment or you know, like being kicked out of the superorganism set. Boy, oh boy, that is such a good way of saying it. Because, yeah, you're like, oh, part of my organism, I have no control over. I'm, I am one with this big, it's like I can't control my arms or legs. That's scary. That's scary. And I never thought of it that way. That's really smart and, and totally makes sense. 
Um, and so therefore we can think about meditation as a remind. So meditation and mindfulness could be a reminder that you are the separate being with your own separate thoughts, your own separate sort of ways. At the same time, again, so many creative paradoxes here at the same time that you're connected with that other thing, you're connected with all things, right? Yes. Um, separate, but connected human condition. It, it, interdependent. You become aware of your interdependence and which in one sense is impossible because once you're aware of your interdependence, you've stepped outside of it. So, but on the relative scale, you can become aware of it on the absolute scale. You would be one with it. But I think that the key thing to develop awareness of is sort of three strands. You, what's happening with you, Angela, what's happening with her and Charlie and Angela, what's happening with us. So the, I've really come to believe that there are three entities in the relationship, you, me, and us. And sometimes what's good for me is not good for us. Sometimes what's good for us is not good for you. Or, you know, it's just, it, it's like the three, three, three plates you're spinning in the air. And all three require and are deserving of your, you know, kind attention. Yeah. Um, in our conversations, we actually have four things. So there's my stuff, there's mm -hmm. her stuff, there's our relationship stuff. And then there's past stuff. That's neither, no, that's none of our stuff that we've get, gotten from parents and family of origin mm -hmm. or society is like, uh, like other stuff. That's not me, not you, not our relationship, but it's like in the relationship bus with us making things murky. And so, I get it. and so it's like, you know, like, <laughs> she's comfortable when we talking about it. Cause we've had conversations about what we can and can't talk about publicly, but I'm like, like, look, I am not your parents. Like I'm not your dad. Like you're fighting your dad right now. Right. I know that like, it looks similar. Right. <laughs> I know, but like, that's not where I'm coming from. Right. And that's sort of past stuff. Right. And it's not her stuff in the sense that it's something like internal that's true for her, but it's there and we got to talk about it and not project that at me. But at the same time, I need to recognize that whatever I'm doing resembles that. And so I could probably stop doing that. But what? But there's just a lot going on and getting so clear what, about what's going on. What does she do when you say, hey, I'm not your dad? Like, how, how does she, I mean, I know there's probably no one thing she does, but is that, what does that do for her? It's what generally a pause, right? Mm -hmm. It was like, oh. Okay, well, I could say, you know, not your mom, not not whoever this person is, right? Um, but it's generally a pause and a consideration of like, okay, is <laughs> then there's a conversation of like, am I actually addressing like that I am doing that I am being an asshole, right? Did that <laughs> am I trying to avoid that by trying to say? But there's a conversation that happens. It's different than this is what you're doing. It's more like this is what's happening. And so we can take a step away from the situation and say, like, actually, no, this is just you, Charlie. Um, and I'm like, Damn it. Right. Um, so let's get into it. Right. Um, but I, I think that's what it does. And she can do the same with me or with other relationships. And so it's it's kind of like that. Um, we we see this all, all sorts of places when we get triggered. But it's kind of like that statement in the army that, like, the generals are always fighting the last war. Right. Is sometimes we show up in a relationship and we show up in conversations and we're fighting some previous battle with some other person, but we're fighting it with the intensity and with the unresolved business of that last thing. And that's being injected into it. it's like, whoa, 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 hate on. Like, that's what's going on here. 
Right. I'm how not, did I get in this how, movie? How did I get into this movie? Like you've been holding on to a decade worth of sting and <laughs> right. And then now you're giving it to me with dividends. Like what's yeah. happening here? Right. And yeah. so and, and so that's why we've sort of had that. It's like what else might be in this what other battles might we be fighting that aren't actually present and, and <laughs> present and accounted for right here? Right. Um, and when those come up, because they do come up because we all have family of origin stuff. We all have past relationship stuff. We all have just stuff. Right. Um, and it's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't fight with you about something you didn't do. <laughs> right. Right. Um, although you can stop doing that thing that makes me do this, like that, that triggers me this way. That's a conversation. But just you are you are that person that hurt me in the past and I'm fighting that person via you. That's not helpful. No, it's not. And it's not kind. Yeah. For anyone. That uh, sounds great. That sounds really like good. Sounds like you guys have good conversations. You get a philosopher and a sociologist together. You have really good conversations. <laughs> um, you know, you mentioned earlier that so much about um, Buddhism is what I would say a practice. It's a doing as opposed to a believing or a having. Um, so there are actually two different types of doing that I, that I want to talk about. One is the five steps, which maybe not six steps when you, when you start talking about good manners, right? Um, so the five steps to develop confidence and the eightfold path of love. So let's start with the five steps. What okay. are they and how do they show up in the context of a relationship? Okay. Well, they're really interesting. I love these steps. My teacher, Sakyong Mipan Rinpoche, taught them to me and not just me, but his students as a way to develop confidence. And Boy, they really are. And then I, I sort of translated them uh, into how they would work with two people. So the first one is, um, they sound so prosaic, but the first one is called clean up your room. <laughs> and oh my God, it sounds so trite, but if you live in a mess, it's very destabilizing and demoralizing. So in, in a relationship, like, your home is is the container. So I'm not saying you have to be neat freaks and different people have different levels of comfort and usually there are two different levels between two people, but to have some sense of care for your environment creates is the first step in creating a container for love that includes more than just how you feel about each other on any given day. These things feed love. The second one is to eat good food or share food together. And again, that may sound trivial, but especially early in a relationship, so much of it often is about sharing food together. And the way I think of it now, you know, 20 years on is we need food to survive. And part of our responsibility to each other includes protecting each other. And so when, when we're eating food together, I can sort of appreciate this is something, this is nourishment that we're partaking of together. So when it, whether eat good food doesn't mean eat healthy food. It just means eat good quality food, whatever it is you're eating. So pay attention to the quality of what you eat together and the quality of the time you spend eating together. The third is to, it also sounds trivial, I'm sorry, but pay attention to the way you look. Not to be like, you know, women especially think, well, I have to be thin and pretty and perky and all that. I don't mean that. I mean, and we've all been there, or at least I have. If you pick up your clothes off the floor, wake up in the morning, pick up your sweats, 
and put them on for like a week, you're not going to feel very good about yourself. And if your, your partner does this, you're going to start to look at them in a different way. So to, to, take, to take some care out of self-respect with the way you appear and the way you clothe yourself, not to be attractive or desirous or I don't know what, seductive, but to be as a gesture of respect to the person that you share space with. It's very meaningful. These things feed love. I'll just say that again. It, you don't have to always rely on your, the psychological matrix that you share. These things can also bring love into your world. And the fourth step is to um, spend time together with people who you like <laughs> and who like you. And that, that may sound self-evident, but we, and we all have people that we have to spend time with. But we don't like spending time with them. So, But the less you can do that and the more you can spend time together with people who like you and you like, the happier you'll be together. And then the, the fifth step is to spend time together in the natural world. And I don't really like that one because <laughs> I'm an indoor kind of person. <laughs> I'm a city person. But there's something about just taking a walk or sitting on, in a park together that changes, that expands your view of your life and of each other and of love and of whatever conversation you're having. So if you do those five things, it helps build a container where love that attracts love. It cracked me up as I was reading it. Cause you know, the first four of those can be amounted to just give a damn. Right. True. <laughs> I mean, and there's different ways of saying, but like be mindful about what you're doing and, and take it, you know, take it respectfully is another way of saying it. Um, the fifth one, get out of nature. I think, I think can be in that, in the sense of appreciate this, this earth that we have appreciate this wilderness that we have. Um, and you know, maybe spend less time on the couch. Like you can appreciate that, but like also there's this world out there that's rather, rather beautiful and healing. Yeah. And see that you're part of something bigger. You are really part of something bigger. And that, that, that is a very expansive thing to acknowledge. Yeah. And I, just as a side note here, like Angela was reading a book, I don't know, 18 months ago. And part of it was how it was like how to have a happy home, which is so something she would not read. She's like, she, so you know how in a relationship, sometimes you'll figure out what your partner's reading and they're kind of like ashamed of it. She's like, I don't know, this feels like 1950s sort of, you know, um, sort of vibe. But part of it, what she took away was like, they had a practice of every, every time they ate dinner together, they ate at the table. Um, well, this is for dinner. They ate at the table and they lit a candle. Right. And it seems like what's that about? It's about the intention, right? It's about right. the, we are here. This is what we are doing. Be here right. now sort of. And we started doing it and it was transformative straight up. It was just like, we're eating at the table. We're lighting a candle. This is what we do. And this is an intentional time together for us to eat and bond and, and you know, wrap in so many of those different types of things. And so little things like that. I mean, you keep saying they're prosaic, but they're actually quite profound, right? They are. They are. It's amazing that something small like that, has this outsized impact. And if, if you accrue those little gestures, so I also told, mentioned this in the book, my teacher, Sakyang Mipa Rinpoche, was born in India and lived in Asia until he was like a teenager and then came here. So he's kind of a mix of East and West. But he married a very traditionally educated Tibetan woman. And they have a, a 
they have a lot of ritual in their life, as one would expect Tibetan Buddhist teachers to have. And every day at four, they have tea together. This was her idea. Let's come have tea with me at four. And they would sit together. So he would show up and be like, okay, what are we here for? What are we going to talk about? And they would just, she would just say, how is your day? Or, you know, they'd have chit chat or something. And he was like, when is she going to get to the point? And after a while, he's like, this is the point. <laughs> we are just sitting here drinking tea together and talking about little things. And there's no agenda. And we're not trying to work through issues. And we are just actually spending time together. It, it tightens the weave. In a, in a really nice way. Yeah, I love that. It reminds me of um, Dan Pink's new book, Win, W-H-E-N. Have you read this mm -hmm. one yet, Susan? I haven't. No, I've not heard of it. And so um, he talks about the importance of time and when we do things in time. But he mentioned that there's this afternoon trough, which is something I've been writing about for the last decade anyways. Um, but there's this afternoon trough where we have low energy and we're really not our best sort of selves anyways, right? And what I love about this is whether she intended to do that, like it tends to go from about 2.30 to about 4, right? Mm -hmm. um, 4.30. And as I work with different people and look at their habits, what comes up for so many of them is there's this period between like 2.30 and 5 to where there's really not a whole bunch of productive work happening, mm -hmm. but they're still at their computer. They're still like trying to crank the, <laughs> to crank the engine and just meta working and not getting anything done. Mm -hmm. Right. And so to retreat in that period, not only does it build that relationship, it also takes care of the people involved because they're not sitting there cranking a wheel that's not going to turn at that, that particular time of the day. So love it on so many different occasions. Those are great points. And right. I do, too. I do, too. Um, all right. So that those are the five steps. Um, do we want to introduce good manners into those steps? Um, well, Sure. Good manners is actually, I know this sounds confusing, and in Buddhism there are a lot of lists, but <laughs> the three, the three, the fourth noble truth, which has three components, good manners is the first component. So I'll just, if you don't mind, I'll just tell you briefly instead of the eightfold path. Is that okay? Let's do it. Okay. So the first type of qualities, the first types of qualities are like foundational qualities that you need to have in a relationship. Good manners, and our favorite, honesty. First means knowing the truth yourself, and then speaking it skillfully, not stupidly. Don't mean blurting things out. So if you don't have good manners and honesty, you're not in a relationship. You could be doing something else. could be awesome, but I wouldn't say you'd be able to have a relationship. And the second quality, also based on the meditation practice of being with yourself as you are and opening to your own experience, is called openness open to this other person as having at least equal importance to yourself in this relationship, which was quite, quite a shocker to me to find that out. So, wow, there's this whole other person here. And almost all of the relationships of books are about how do I get what I want? When do I ever think about how does he or she or they get what he or she or they want? That requires some skill set. That's a skill set. Um, and then the third quality is called going beyond, going beyond sort of conventional views of what relationships are or should be, which you meet my needs, I meet your needs, and so on. To go beyond conventional view, I believe, is to look at everything that happens between the two of you, good, bad, and ugly, not as a way to deepen love, which will always come and go, 
but as a way to deepen intimacy. Because intimacy has no end. That is something you can actually commit to. You can make a vow to intimacy that you cannot make to love. So I find that very heartening. And I feel like, oh, that's an honest promise. I can really promise to try to do that. I cannot promise to love you. But I can promise to always work to deepen what I show of myself and to what I see of you. So those are, those are the three steps. That's amazing. And, you know, my how time flies. I'm looking at it and realize yeah, wow. that, that we need to wrap up. But, you know, we, we sort of left on five steps and then the three things that need to be in the relationship. So um, since you've been a guest before, you know what I'm about to ask you. Um, as a guest on today's show, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge, depending upon what most resonates with you. So based upon what we've talked about, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? Mm. Give me one second to think about that. I would invite or challenge your listeners to experience their deepest sort of longings for love without a storyline attached to them, to just feel the longing. The longing is actually good. It's the story that we attach to it. I need to have this longing met. I'll never have it met. I used to, now I don't. That's what creates difficulty. But to acknowledge your longing for love without a story attached to it is kind of magical. Susan, as always, you're one of my favorite people. So thanks for showing up for the fourth episode of the podcast. Charlie, you are one of my favorite people, and I am so happy that we're in each other's lives. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Susan. What can you do to feel and experience that longing for love without the story, without the grasping around that? Um, we're both going to recommend a meditation, mindfulness, or a thoughtfulness process where you sit with that feeling and that longing. Till next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes. 